start on this computer. Good afternoon, producer Susan. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Jersey Joe? I'm just doing fine. Thank you. Wonderful weather here. Did you get any of that snow? Uh, Thursday. It's coming Thursday. Coming Thursday. And I'm going to be talking about Christmas trees. Actually, you're going to be talking about Christmas trees. I understand you had quite, quite a time trying to buy one this week. Oh, yes. There is apparently a national shortage. Well, we're going to talk about that because it's making it's the lead story in a lot of the news stations here in the New York, New York City area. So uh, let's do a, a quick rundown of the things I hope to get to today. Um, let's see what we're going to try to talk about. And by the way, the, uh, it's, the it's the situation with Jersey Joe for first time listeners. It's a news and perspective that you won't hear on TV. Uh, I guarantee you some of the things we talk about, we're going to talk about today, you haven't heard. And other things we talk about, you may have heard about them, but you may not have heard, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Um, quote of the day is going to be from uh, Mike Rowe, the guy who hosts the uh, Dirty Job Show, uh, which just started another new season. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk, and uh, it's why work ethic is more important than natural ability. Um, in today's Science Minute, we'll talk about the winter solstice. So you know anybody who has a degree in earth science who might not know anything about the winter solstice? I, I do know uh, somebody who has a degree in earth and mineral sciences. Maybe we can uh, get them to come on this podcast with us and talk about that. Uh, <laughs> we will talk very quickly about the Christmas tree shortage. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about mushrooms. Think, did you, we're going to talk about mushrooms that glow in the dark and where the mushroom capital of the world is. Um, we're going to talk about the $450 contribution you made to the Teamsters Pension Fund last week. Um, did you get your thank you card from the from the Teamsters? I did not. I'm still waiting. All right. And so am I, but hopefully it'll come sometime this week. But And we'll talk about um, why everybody listening made that $450 contribution and why you should be checking your mailbox for your thank you card. Um, a big topic. Um, we're going to talk about why the Social Security system is heading towards bankruptcy and why delaying the fix will make it even more expensive to save. Um, and if we have time, well, and if we have time, we'll talk about uh, what it cost about six miles of low-speed railroad track in Boston uh, and how that would relate to a national high-speed uh, rail network. And our taxpayer relief shot from it comes from Las Vegas, where a woman shoots and kills a thug with his own gun. Does that sound like it's interesting? Sounds like you have a lot to fit in in a short time. <laughs> right. Well, let's see how much we can get in. Anyway, quote of the day. And here's Mike Rowe's quote. Work ethic is important because unlike intelligence, athleticism, charisma, or any other natural attribute, it is a choice. Now, let me put this in perspective. A person can have great natural ability. Let's like a gymnast. Let's say you're you're a third grader and, you know, and you're in the, and you display amazing gymnastic talent, you know, as, as, you know, you're eight years old and man, you had this incredible, or, or you're a 10 year old figure skater. Uh, so you've got, you've been graced by God with this, you know, natural talent, but unless you have the work ethic to practice eight hours a day, six days a week for four or five years, uh, you will never be an Olympic medal winner. Medal winner. So it's it's the work ethic, the hard work. The same thing with intelligence. I know several people who have a genius IQ, but they are lazy and don't apply that intelligence to any productive use, and you know they just kind of just loaf through life. So you can be you can be a genius. You can have great athletic ability, 
But unless you're willing to do, you know, to make the choice of hard work, um, it, it's not going to amount to anything. So again, as Mike Rowe points out, regardless of what you do, whether you are a a welder, a carpenter, uh, a, a, an Olympic figure skater, uh, what should be admired is work ethic, because work because natural ability is not a choice. Work ethic is a choice, and I think that's very important. Any any thoughts on on work ethic being a choice? Uh, it, I think that it is a choice, and I I do agree with Mike Rowe, uh, and I love his show. Mm -hmm. And again, so again, I'm not trying to denigrate people who are born with you know in, in abilities, but you know, but without the ethic to go along. And again, you don't have to have these great. I mean, I know guys who are just genius welders. They they weren't born knowing how to weld, but they practice at it. You know, they they worked at, at perfecting their craft. And you, I have to admire guys. And, and women, you know, who just really work really hard at becoming, you know, the best at what they do. Uh, in fact, I go back to Martin Luther King in his famous speech. You know, if you're a street sweeper, you should endeavor to become the best street sweeper, you know, there ever was. Anyway, given our limited amount of time, uh, well, we could probably talk about that for 20 minutes, but let's move on to the winter solstice. So, so you think you can find that person who knows who's a uh, majored in in earth science? You think you can get her on the on the podcast with us? Yeah, I think I can do that. Yeah, the winter solstice is coming up uh, in about a week or so. You know what day? Well, first of all, what is the winter solstice? It is uh well, it's actually um when we are tilted as far away from the sun as possible, which makes it the shortest day of the year. Um, as you've been noticing, the the sun has been setting earlier and earlier. Our sun is setting around four thirty. Mm -hmm. um, but the good news is, on the as of after the winter solstice, which is uh, the December twenty first, it's always December twenty first. It'll start to get a, a minute later each day. Right. So again, so next week, um, depending when you're listening to this, but uh, uh, this is going to be uh, posted on the fourteenth. So on the twenty first, the winter solstice occurs. It'll be the shortest day of the year. When we have the least uh, the least amount of uh, daylight, and the day after that, we start to gain about a minute uh, to a minute and a half a day. Now, here's a here's a quick question: What is the next solar event that follows the winter solstice? Uh, it is the spring. Uh, uh, the it's a, it's a Greek Greek word. I'm trying to think of the word for spring. I know autumnal is fall. I'm trying to think of the spring. What is the spring word? It, it vernal. The vernal. Oh, thank you. Vernal and, equinox. Uh, and what happens on the vernal equinox? Uh, that is when the daylight is equal. We are equally tilted from the sun. So we have uh, 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of, of darkness. Right. So again, there's and actually it's also the start of spring. Right. So uh, so we've got the winter solstice occurs next week. Shortest, uh, shortest day of the year. The vernal equinox uh, occurs, I believe, in April, if I'm not mistaken. And that's um, when no, it's in March. It's March 21st, I believe. Okay, March 20, all right. In March. So we have equal amounts of daylight and night. And then we have the and then the days get um uh some the uh, summer solstice. Summer solstice, where they, we have the longest day of the year, then it's the autumnal 21st. equinox, which is when again that we get the same amount of daylight and nighttime, and then we're back to the um well, equinox. Now um Let's talk about the Christmas tree shortage. Now, I've been turning on the, the local news here. I get the New York City news stations 
and they're talking about the scarcity of, of uh, Christmas trees. And they're saying that prices in the New York City area are north of $20 per foot. So if you want to buy a five foot tree, it's a hundred dollars. And as they get bigger, the prices go, you know, 22, 24, $25 a foot. Now, so I understand that where you live, you probably live within a couple of miles of tree farms. I mean, there's absolutely there's deer, in, there's deer in your backyard, right? So you're not too there's, far. there's probably deer in my backyard right as we speak. Right. Um, yes, yeah, so I live in the Christmas tree capital of the world. Uh, Christmas trees right outside my door. Um, and there is a shortage of Christmas trees. Now, I, I we don't go and cut our own. We do get the pre-cut ones that are cut that day. But the places that we have frequent each Christmas, um, they have already sold out for the season. Oh, my um, God. And, uh, and here you are. You're, you're, so you're smack in the middle of the Christmas tree capital of the world. And the lot and the Christmas tree lots are empty. They are closed because the trees that are ready to be harvested have already been harvested. Um, so there's no more left to be, the, you know, they're still growing, but they're for next year and the year after right. that and the year after that. It takes about 10 years for a tree to get um, ready to be harvested. Right. So yeah, they are sold out for the year. Um, we went to three different places and literally the, the last place we went, there was three trees left. So we got what we got. So <laughs> um, now, not even my first pick of tree. My I like the the firs, the um the Fraser firs or the Douglas firs, and I ended up with a um oh it's the orange tree. Um, I forget what they're called. The ones that smell like citrus. It's still uh, a beautiful tree, but I did pay a lot more. I paid twice as much money this year as I have in previous well, years. So you know it may be uh, too little, too late. But for those of you who are listening to this uh, this week. Um, and haven't yet bought a bought a Christmas tree and want a live tree, you better hustle because you're probably going to have a hard time finding one. And when you do find one, it's going to cost you a bunch of money. It's probably going to be a Charlie Brown tree too. Charlie Brown tree. And um, I was like, this little guy's thirsty. He's been drinking a gallon of water a day. And I've your had tree? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Thirsty wow. little guy. Wow. Incredible. Um, all right. Let's move on to mushrooms. Um, Producer Sue, do you happen to know where the mushroom capital of the world is? I do know that too. The mushroom capital of the world is right here in Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. You know what the name of the town is? Uh, Kennett Square. Kennett Square, PA. It's a little town, by the way. You wouldn't happen to know the population of Kennett Square, would you? Uh, it's pretty small. It's try 6,000 people. Now try 6,000 people, which is really, it's more like a hamlet, if you will, like a village, 6,000 people. But uh, surrounding Kennett Square, there are 16 mushroom farms that produce, wait for it, 500 million pounds of mushrooms every year. That is half of all the mushrooms eaten in this country annually. Can you imagine 500 million pounds of mushrooms and being produced in just that one, in and around that one little town of Kennett Square, PA? Is well, I mean, not just, I mean, Kennett Square is the capital, but they do, you know, so the Christmas tree capital of the world and the mushroom tree or the mushroom capital of the world kind of overlap here in Pennsylvania. <laughs> right. But um, anyway, so as I dug into this, uh, here's some interesting things. Now, you know that green plants breathe in CO2. They 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 uh, scrape off the carbon and they use it to build, you know, stalk and wood and stuff. And they release oxygen. That's why you bring green plants. That's why the customer bringing green plants to people in the hospital rooms, because they take in CO2 and uh, and cleanse it and release oxygen. They retain the carbon. 
Uh, something unique about mushrooms. Did you know that mushrooms breathe in and capture oxygen? I did not know that. I just know I find them in my backyard during wet seasons. Well, and let's talk about how many different varieties of, of mushroom species do you think throughout? If you had to guess, rough, take a rough guess, uh, 500, 5,000, 50,000? I'm going to say there's probably 5,000. Try 140,000 different species of mushrooms. Now, out of those 140,000, you want to guess uh, how many are edible? <laughs> probably maybe 50 are edible. No, there's actually 3,000, but that's still less than two and a half percent. Um, and here's some interesting stats. The, you know, people talk about the magic mushrooms. Out of those uh, 140,000, 200 are, are uh, hallucinogenic. And a couple of states, I think Oregon, I think Colorado just uh, made uh, magic mushrooms, hallucinogenic mushrooms legal to, uh, to sell and to possess. But here's something I didn't know. You know that there are, uh, just like there are some jellyfish that uh, are luminescent, there are 75 species of mushrooms that glow in the dark. Yeah, bioluminescence. Bioluminescence. So did you know that there were mushrooms that glowed in the dark? I did know that, yes. So you so what you learned about mushrooms today, you, so you learned that they breathe in, unlike a plant, they breathe in, they breathe in oxygen. Um, by the way, they're very vitamin rich. Um there's 3,000 edible species, 200 of uh, 200 of hallucinogenic, and there's 75 species that are bioluminescent. Anyway, now, now Jersey Joe, I like a good mushroom with a good steak, but how about you? I'm not a big. I mean, I'll eat them. I'm not gonna like if they come on a pizza. I'm not gonna scrape them off. Um, but I'm not a big mushroom fan, even though they're very healthy. They're vitamin rich. I'm I'm just not just never got into it. I'd rather rather eat the steak than the mushrooms. <laughs> so. You know, I think it was something when I was in uh, junior high school and they said, they said, well, uh, a mushroom is a parasitic fungus. And I just think that, you know, something about eating a parasitic fungus <laughs> kind of just turned me off just the thought of it. But no, I mean, I've eaten them. I'm not going to scrape them off my pizza. You know, if somebody orders one of these everything pizzas, I'll eat them, but I'm not, I'm not going to go out of my way to order them. All right. So let's go on to... Um, the $450 contribution you made to the Teamsters Pension Fund last week um, and why we're both waiting for our, our uh, thank you card. Now, uh, if you pay federal income taxes, you did donate $450 to the Midwest Teamsters Pension Fund. And let me tell you about that. Um, the Teamsters have several different regional funds and the, the Midwest Pension Fund was heading towards bankruptcy. They were paying out far more than they were taking in because the team, the membership in Teamsters Union has shrank over the years. And it was kind of like a Ponzi scheme that they were depending upon uh, contributions from current members to support all of the retired members. And of course, with medical advancements, the retired members were, were living longer than anybody ever anticipated. So the fund was on the road to bankruptcy now, the U.S. many, many years ago created something called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp., the PBGC. And every company that has a defined benefit pension plan uh, is just like when you put money, you see your savings account, FDIC insured. Well, your bank has to put some money, you know, a couple of cents on the dollar into the FDIC insurance program. So if your bank went belly up, if your bank failed, the FDIC insures your deposits up to $250,000. 
Well, that was the same concept with the PBGC that uh, every pension fund was required every year to contribute a certain small percentage of their assets to the PBGC. And as pension funds would fail, the PBGC would step in, they would take over the fund and they would handle, you know, payments to retirees if and when those pension plans failed. Um, so why did Biden feel the need to step in and contribute, make a direct grant of $36 billion to the Midwest Teamsters Pension Fund? And I'll get to why he did it as soon as I tell you how I came up with uh, the amount. Um, I came up with a $450 contribution this way. There's approximately 140 million income tax returns filed in this country every year, but um, almost half of them are not net taxpayers. They file to get a refund or get 100% of their money back or to get, or they file just because they have to file even though they own, own no taxes. So out of those 140 million filed tax returns, only, only 80 million are net taxpayers. Well, if you divide $36 billion, which is how much he literally gave, no strings attached, it's, it's not a loan, it's a grant to the Teamsters Pension Fund. You divide $36 billion by 80 million taxpayer, taxpaying household, that comes out to $450 per house taxpaying household. Now, um, he could have just said, well, yeah, too bad, but you know, we've got the PBGC. Uh, if it goes bankrupt, they'll take care of it. Well, the reason he decided to do this is that once the you, uh, PBGC takes over a, a, a failed pension fund, they do have limits. And their limit is that they will only pay $1,300 per month per uh, beneficiary. And in the case of the Teamsters, uh, many of the Teamsters either currently retired or about to retire their benefit would exceed the $1,300 amount that the PBGC um, guarantees. So he decided to skip that and say, you know, we're not going to let you fail. We're going to give you $36 billion of taxpayer dollars directly into the fund. And he did that. That was part of the, uh, that money came out of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act that was passed last year. It's basically kind of a slush fund, $1.9 trillion slush fund. And I simply question the motivation. Why did he, we've had many failed pension funds over the years. No president has ever stepped in to save, save one in this manner. So uh, I question why Biden felt it necessary to save this one particular union pension plan. My personal opinion, and this is subjective opinion, I think it was a vote buying effort because the message he's sending was not just to this one pension fund, I believe it was a message to all union pension plans that if you keep Democrats, and if you're a member of a union and if your pension plan fails, the Democrats will make sure you get the full amount promised. I mean, that's my belief, my opinion. I can't prove it, but I, I don't know what other motivation he would have for singling out a union pension plan other than to send a message to union members um, Keep Democrats in office and we'll make sure we take care of you. You, you. Can you think of any other reason he would have singled them out for this to bypass the PBGC? I mean, I guess my question is, why hasn't anybody questioned his rationale for doing this? Well, they have. But unfortunately, you'll never see, you know, what I call the mainstream media. Um, you know, obviously, some of the conservative news networks like Fox and whatnot have. 
but I haven't seen a word about this on CBS, NBC. And by the way, in the morning, you may not believe this, but I actually start with ABC. And after the first 30 minutes, I kick over to NBC. And after the next 30 minutes, I kick over to, so to CBS. So I devote 90 minutes every morning watching the three network news shows. And not one of those three networks mentioned this. And I'm not even going to bother with CNN or MSNBC because I guarantee you they did not mention that. Um, uh, so, you know, will we ever know for sure? No. Do I think I know why he did it? Yes. I think it was to send a message to the unions that keep us in office and we'll take care of you. Um, anyway, so as long as we're talking about pensions, you ready to move on to sure. social security or you want to stay, stay with the teamsters? Uh, we, we can move on. All right. So, by the way, people said, oh, you know, Social Security is going bankrupt because the government borrowed the money and never paid it back. Well, you know, Susan, if you if you've got an extra if you got some money around and you open a savings account and or you in, you invest it in a savings bond. Did, did you invest the money or did the government borrow the money? It's a little bit of both. I invested the money to which they borrowed against. Right. But um, so what's happened, the Social Security uh, Trust Fund over the year, when it was taking in more than it was paying out, they began to build a surplus. And the trustees said, well, you know, uh, we don't need this cash. We don't want to leave it lying around in a vault. So let's invest this surplus cash in interest-bearing U.S. Treasury bonds. And as of the end of last year, that trust fund had grown to 276 trillion dollars trillion dollars but unfortunately it's and by the way in that uh 2.76 trillion um those treasury bonds it's invested in contributed 67 billion in earned interest into the fund last year however despite that earned interest the program still paid out almost 60 billion more in benefits and administrative overhead costs than it took in than it took in, and therefore it had to dip into the principal of that trust fund to cover the difference. Um, and at the and at the uh, the rate it's going, the trustees are saying, "Hey, by we're going to fully deplete that trust fund by 2033 because every month the the shortfall is going to get bigger and bigger, and we're going to have to dip in and take more and more out of the trust fund. And by two 2034, if we don't fix it, we'll only have enough cash coming in." to pay out promised benefits at the rate of 80 cents on the dollar. So why is the why is the why is the system going broke? Why is it taking in less cash than going out? Well, let's go back to history. 1935 when the Social Security Act became law, the average life expectancy in this country, you want to guess what the average life expectancy was? Back then, it was probably only 60 something. 66. So in 19 and the, and the age to begin collecting benefits was 65. So in 1935, um, half the people contributing to the plan never got old enough to begin collecting. You know what the average life expectancy is today? Uh, it's in the 70s. So I want to say 77 now. 78 and a half. So the average age has grown by 12. The average life expectancy has grown by 12 and a half years. And yet today, the average age to be in collecting both full benefits has only grown by one year from age 65 to 66. Now, by the way, if you were born after 1960, 
uh, the age to begin collecting full benefits will jump by one year to 67, but that's still only a two-year increase against a uh, 12 against a 12 and a half year increase in life expectancy. And let me tell you how that works out. In 1950, we had 16 and a half working contributors for every one beneficiary. Not bad, right? 16 and a half people contributing to pay the benefits of one person. But then along comes modern medicine, screws everything up. You know, we, we, uh, we, you know, we cure people from cancer. You know, we, we have heart transplant, kidney transplants, and people are living, you know, longer and longer every year. So, um, so how do we fix it? Because if you don't do something um, in 11 years, the, the program's going to go broke and people are only going to get 80 cents on the dollar. Now, there's a couple of ways you could fix it. You know, one, you can say, okay, we're going to keep pushing back the, the age to collect full benefits from 67, maybe in a couple of years, it goes to 68, 69. That would be wildly unpopular. Um, but, you know, next year, if you did something very tiny, like, you know, by the way, do you know, have to know how much they take out of your, on a percentage basis, how much they take out of your paycheck for your contribution to Social Security? Uh, I don't know the percentage just for Social Security. I just know the overall percentage. Well, it's seven and a half percent from you and seven and a half percent from your employer. So it's it's 15 percent in total. Right. So next year, if they said, you know, we're going to goose that by a half a percent instead of seven and a half from you and seven and a half from your employer, we're going to make it eight percent from you and eight percent from your employer. That and oh, by the way, this thing about where you can retire at age 62. Now, if you elect to retire at 62, you don't get your full benefit. You get a reduced benefit, but it's still like 85 percent of the benefit. So um, if they did something next year, it'd have to be a little tiny correction, a half a percent more from you. And by the way, if you're taking home a thousand dollars a week, uh, you know what a half a percent of a thousand bucks is? Uh, Ten dollars. Five bucks right? Half a percent. Yeah. Half a percent is what, so it would be an extra five bucks out of your, out of your thousand dollar take home pay. Um, you, you wouldn't even, it's the cost of a Starbucks coffee, almost nothing. And oh, by the way, instead of getting, being able to retire at 62, let's bump that up to 63. And maybe a couple of years after that, we bump it up to 64. Um, it'd be almost painless. And by the way, if we did that, that would just about, uh, negate, the additional revenue from that additional half a percent from you and half a percent for employer would um, make the plan break even from the cash flow and they wouldn't have to dip into the uh, the trust fund. And why is that important? Well, remember, I said, you probably don't remember, but I, I quoted a number what the trust fund took in in earned interest last year. It took in 67 billion in earned interest. Well, if you allow the trust fund to become depleted before you act, in addition to making up the $60 billion contribution shortfall, you now have to make up the $67 billion of lost interest. By doing the extra half a percent next year, you would preserve the trust fund at its current 2.76, and you were to retain that $67.5 billion of earned interest. Now, if you wait five years, the half a percent doesn't fix that anymore. It has to become... Uh, one uh, it has to become 1.2 percent. If you wait 10 years, it has to become 1.8 percent from both you and your employer. And oh, by the way, at that and the reason it has to become 1.8, the reason it's not linear is because if you wait 10 years, the trust fund is gone, 
and you've lost that 67 billion per year of earned interest. So that's why it is not a linear, it's not a simple half a percent, 1%, 1.5%, because the longer you wait, the more of that earned interest you lose. The problem is with politicians, nobody wants to be the first to say, you know, we have to do this because next time they run for a re-election, their opponent is going to say, you know, he wants to steal your social security. He wants to raise your taxes. So we've got this um, political situation where everybody knows what has to be done. Nobody wants to step forward and say, uh, I want to do it. What we need is more senators who are not going to run for re-election. They have to step forward and say, hey, I don't care. I'm not running for re-election. This is what we have to do. Um, it's just sad that we have a political system where nobody wants to do that. They all know what the right thing is, but nobody wants to do it because they're afraid their opponent is going to um, use it against them when the next re-election cycle comes around. So any thoughts on on uh, why doing nothing uh, on the, the uh, situation we're in and, and any thoughts on what you would do if you were king? Well, uh, one thing queen? I feel like they're not going to have social security by the time I get a chance to retire. <laughs> well, I think we, we will have it, but it will some, it'll be somewhat draconian. Uh, by the way, you know, they talk about, well, we need to raise the cap on, on right now. I believe the cap is once you hit 147,000, you don't contribute anymore and you don't contribute on investment income. It's only on wages. But what these people say, well, let's just raise the cap. Well, what they fail to recognize is that uh, that one of the, the fundamental principles of Social Security is the more you put in, the bigger your contribution, the bigger your benefit. What they're proposing is, well, we want to raise the contribution cap, but not the benefit cap. Well, if you do that, if you say, well, we want you to put in twice as much as you were putting in because we want to we want to make investment income subject to Social Security taxes, but no, your monthly benefit won't increase. And what you're basically doing is say, we want to convert Social Security from kind of a mandatory retirement savings plan to a, a new and different wealth redistribution program where you will never get back the money you put in. The money you put in will go to other people. Uh, and that's just a socialist wealth redistri redistribution program. So um, that's why I am vehemently opposed to raising the cap without raising the benefit. But that is what the many of the Democrats want to do is raise the cap without raising the benefits. Anyway, so how much time we got? Uh, you have about 10 minutes left. Or, no, sorry, you have about five minutes left. Well, let's move right on to our taxpayer relief shots. And uh, for those who don't know it, uh, let me have the uh, sheriff of Santa Rosa County, uh, Florida, explain to you what a taxpayer relief shot is. And let me see if I can turn this up a little bit. Here we go. Somebody's breaking in your house. You're more than welcome to shoot them in Santa Rosa County. We prefer that you do, actually. Hopefully, you'll save the taxpayers money. And again, and what he's saying is very true. I mean, if if you simply arrest a thug and he goes to trial, he's get a court up. He gets a court appointed attorney, which is going to call. And then he gets uh, appeals, and then he goes to jail at eighty thousand dollars a year. And and so, if you put a guy in jail for ten years, that's eight hundred thousand dollars, not counting his his litigation costs. And here's what uh, Sheriff uh, Grady Judge, in, also in Florida, says. I would highly suggest that if a looter breaks into your home, comes into your home while you're there to steal stuff, that you take your gun and you shoot him. You shoot him so that he looks like grated cheese. All right. So those are two uh, sworn officers of the law saying, yes, we prefer you shoot the thugs. Anyway, this one comes to us from Las Vegas. 
um, where a woman in, uh, is a subject of a carjacking. And uh, I love this one. And here we go. Police say a group tried to carjack a woman in North Las Vegas, and that woman shot and killed one of the suspects with his own gun. We just got the arrest report for one of the other men involved who survived. North Las Vegas police say two women were parked near Craig and Simmons waiting for a Friendsgiving to begin. The woman told police a car blocked hers and two men forced her out of her driver's seat. One suspect tried to start her car but couldn't. While doing so, he put down a gun on his lap. The woman grabbed the gun and ran. That suspect tackled her, and that's when she turned and shot him. North Las Vegas police are calling this self-defense. And police also say there's at least one more suspect involved. So if you know anything that can help catch that person, call Crime Stoppers, 702-385-5555. All right, so we got uh, two things. Well, hang on, let me, let me stop this guy here. So we got two things. As usual, his buddy, well, well, first of all, the bad guy, winds up DRT and DRT stands for dead right there, dead right there. Second thing, his buddy, as usual, when the first guy gets shot, what does his buddy do? Does he stay to help his buddy? Hell no. <laughs> Runs like <laughs> hell. Have we, have we ever heard one of these where the buddy sticks <laughs> around? Have we, nope. have we ever had just one? I don't no. believe so. <laughs> now uh, let's talk about one other interesting thing. Uh, when he was sitting in the car trying to start it, if she had just grabbed the gun and shot him, do you think that would have been a legitimate use of force? I believe so, yes. Well, I think it would be questionable because the argument could be made that um, if he's in the car, you're outside the car, you have the gun, that maybe your life really wasn't in danger. But she began running. Oh, I thought running. you said if she, grabbed the, if she grabbed the gun from him. Well, it was in his lap. Yeah. The, the gun was in his lap. But what made this a slam dunk self-defense, she grabbed the gun and ran away and he chased her and tackled her. And mm -hmm. I think that's a key legal point. Yeah. I think, you know, some zealous uh, district attorney could have prosecuted her if she just grabbed it standing outside the car, grabbed it out and then fired it at him while he was sitting there, not representing an immediate threat. You know, that's that could have been questionable. Maybe she got prosecuted. But when she ran away and he chased her and tackled her, um, at that point, it's clearly self-defense. Anyway, running out of time, so I want to thank all of you who listened to this podcast for giving up 30 minutes of your busy day to listen to me to ramble on about things I find of interest and importance. I hope you found those topics as interesting and as, as I did, and if so, I hope you continue to listen. If you want to see some of the materials or story links you heard me talk about, you can find them on the Jersey Joe website. Just remember, Jersey spelled J-E-R as in Roger, Z as in Zebra, eejerseyjoe.com. Uh, if you want to email me with a comment or a question or a suggested show topic, as some of our listeners have, you can do that just by sending me an email to joe at jerseyjoe.com. Uh, with that, uh, I've got nothing else. Uh, Producer Sue, you have anything? Nope. All right. Well, then I'll talk to you next week. And thank Enjoy you all. Enjoy the snow. All right. Well, you too. Bye-bye.